Hey, this is Paul Spellman. Welcome once again to my podcast. I have a story about that. Today's podcast, this is um, episode number four, and I call it uh, Love and War. Last week, uh, if you were in on uh, part of that episode, I was talking about some love letters that were written by a soldier from Texas during World War I, written back to his newlywed bride. And the context of that story was, uh, first of all, a book that uh, that I had written, and I guess this is a blatant kind of commercial here right in the middle of this. Uh, the book is called Until I Come Home, Love Letters from the War, 1918 and 1919. It's available on Amazon, and it's also available uh, on Kindle. At any rate, as a part of that story that I was telling in the last episode, we were looking at the flu pandemic that spread around the world in 1918 and in 1919, partly because of the war and of the movement of troops and citizens and civilians uh, carrying the flu from one continent to another. And in the midst of all of that story, we were looking at this uh, young man named Roscoe Chittam, and I had promised last time that I might talk a little bit more about Roscoe and his wife, Vera Diamond. And so today I want to take a little bit of time and talk about uh, each of them, a little bit about their background, how they came to met, meet and fall in love, and uh, read some of the love letters that, uh, that he wrote to her uh, when he was uh, carrying off to war. Now, to get that story started, we're going to go to uh, southeastern Missouri. We're going to go uh, just about a few miles northwest of Springfield, Missouri. When you get out into that area, there's a small little town called Ash Grove. Not too far from that is a much smaller place called Cave Spring. And just a few miles north of those two communities, is or was used to be a very tiny community called Graydon Springs. Kind of hard to find a map uh, that on a map anymore. Um, but we're um, we're on Interstate 44, uh, traveling east or west uh, through that part of Missouri, and then turn north just a little bit, uh, crossing uh, over an area called Coates Branch Creek. And by the way, just a little bit uh, outside of Ash Grove, if you're driving in that area, uh, you will come across the Nathan Boone Homestead State Historic Site. This is beautiful country out here in southern Missouri. The hills are rolling, uh, heavily forested areas, giving way only occasion to a state highway here or there in small communities uh, as you leave the uh, Springfield area. Uh, up off of Highway 160 and State Highway 123 as you leave the interstate. Nathan Boone was the son of the famous Westerner Daniel Boone. And uh, Nathan Boone made his home here uh, for a great part of his life uh, in this area around Ash Grove and died in 1857 in Ash Grove and is buried uh, just outside that community. And so a state historic site resides uh, right in this same area we're looking at. Well, one of the reasons we're looking at this particular area, I'm going to read a little bit from my book that introduces Roscoe Chittam 
um, and his birth there in that particular area. So here we go a little bit from uh, my book, Until I Come Home. On August 4th, 1889, a baby was born to Edna Hale and Alf Chittam at their home near Graydon Springs, Missouri. Christened Roscoe Conklin, the healthy, already black-haired boy, came into a world sadly swirling in controversy and anger over his birth. The conflict would cause the boy to grow up without a father, raised in a setting far away from his birthplace. Edna Hale was a Cherokee Indian, full-blooded, her parents uh, originally from uh, the eastern Tennessee area and had then moved uh, to Missouri shortly after the Trail of Tears uh, episodes uh, back in the 1830s. Alfred Chittam was an Anglo boy uh, whose family uh, came to Missouri from North Carolina a generation or so earlier. Let me continue here with this next chapter in the book. Alf Chittam and Edna Hale, three months apart in age and living only a few miles from one another, grew up together attending a small one-room schoolhouse near Cave Springs, roaming the Missouri countryside with siblings and friends, and growing closer to one another as their adolescent years arrived. On September 20th, 1888, Alf's 17th birthday, he and his sweetheart stole away from their homes and eloped to nearby Graydon Springs, just north of Ash Grove, where they intended to establish a common-law marriage, not an unusual occurrence on the frontier where parsons were few and far between, and where the marital bonds of Anglos and Indians was still largely unacceptable. Edna became pregnant before an annulment could be registered by either of the families, and she gave birth to their son on August 4th that next summer, 1889. Any hope that the child would bring some reconciliation of the two neighboring families never materialized, however, and the couple and their infant son were returned to the Cass Township uh, in October. Only one month later, Edna, her baby boy, and her parents packed their belongings and moved away to Indian Territory, now the state of Oklahoma. Alf Chittam would never see his wife and son again. Years later, he would marry and raise five children, but the mother of his first child would be forced to respond to their son's query years and years later, quote, your father died shortly after you were born." Unquote. A very sad, uh, kind of melancholy beginning for a young couple who had had so much promise with their love for one another, only to be separated forever. Uh, Edna Hale and her uh, family moved um, about 150 miles west of uh, the Ashgrove area. <clears throat> if you take, excuse me, if you take Highway uh, Interstate 44 and continue west, you make your way through Joplin, Missouri, and then ultimately a little southwest from there, 
uh, into the Verdigree River Valley and the town of Claremore, Oklahoma. And it was there in Claremore, Oklahoma, where uh, Roscoe Chittum was raised. He got his Anglo name from the Cherokee uh, chief, Joel Mays, who, uh, as a long-standing tradition, would give an Anglo name to the uh, boys born of Cherokees uh, that was generally from a list of significant Americans uh, who had died. Those names would then go on lists, and when a child was brought before the chief, a, a name would be selected from that list. So there are a lot of uh, George Washingtons and Thomas Jeffersons and Alexander Hamiltons and Benjamin Franklins and a lot of the early Cherokee names. Roscoe Conkling was actually a, a substantially significant lawyer from New York, also a congressman and United States senator, and in the 1870s was a very prominent and staunch uh, Republican uh, having a great influence on the Republican Party during those early years of the Gilded Age. Conkling died in 1888, and a year later, uh, this young uh, infant child uh, was given his name. The Cherokee name that Roscoe always preferred was uh, Huho, and more times than not, he would identify himself as being named Huho Chittum, um, the Roscoe part, only when uh, really necessary. So Roscoe starts off his life uh, in a pretty uh, fascinating way. Um, there in Claremore, if you recognize the name of that town, you might also know that during that same period of time, living just a couple of blocks away from the young Roscoe, was a boy a few years older named Will Rogers. Two of them got to know each other as kids in the neighborhood, and um, Roscoe would talk about that in the years that followed, some fond memories of uh, learning a few roping tricks and a few adventures uh, from, uh, from Will Rogers. Roscoe himself was quite the athlete growing up. Um, he uh, was a great swimmer, winning many of the contests in that local area and quite an athlete in many other sports as well. The turn of the century, he was encouraged to travel to Murfreesboro, Tennessee to attend the Anderson School for Boys and play football. Football, a pretty nascent sport at that time, early on in the, uh, in the first part of the 20th century. Uh, but teams here and there were being formed and uh, famous people like uh, those uh, in uh, Michigan and Minnesota and Notre Dame uh, putting together uh, a lot of reputation for uh, early college football. So uh, Roscoe made his way then uh, to Murfreesboro, Tennessee. That's about 35 miles southeast of Nashville. Uh, while he was there in a very short period of time, he played one season of football. But at the end of that uh, season, because of other factors going on, the Anderson School for Boys was forced to shut down and reopen some uh, months later in a uh, better organized, publicly funded school that today is Middle Tennessee State University. 
So uh, Roscoe then, uh, the adventures continued. His athleticism uh, caught the uh, attention of several coaches uh, in the Missouri area and again in Tennessee. He actually tried out for the 1912 uh, U.S. Olympic team that was headed to Stockholm. Uh, he was ill uh, during that period of time, but accompanied the, uh, the team anyway, although he did not actively participate uh, in Stockholm. He was there as an observer and cheerleader, if you will, for the other members of the Olympic team, one of his roommates being uh, Jim Thorpe who, as you would know, did very well in those Olympics. Roscoe returned to the United States. He lived for a time in New Jersey and New York City, where he actually met uh, the son of Roscoe Conkling and made that connection uh, through their names, eventually returning to Texas. And when he was back in Texas, after a foray through the Oklahoma oil fields, Roscoe finally began to settle down in San Antonio. And there, he uh, opened up a tire business uh, related to the uh, very uh, infant uh, automobile industry at the time. He was a successful businessman in his mid-20s, uh, had lots of energy, was apparently a very uh, uh, intelligent and congenial person with a lot of drive, and his tire business uh, took off uh, very quickly. And so, in 1916, uh, he traveled up to Dallas to look into the possibility of starting a second tire company there. When he arrived in Dallas, he actually uh, rented a small apartment in the um, town of Oak Cliff. Oak Cliff is a suburb just south of downtown Dallas, right across the Trinity River. At the time, it was a fairly brand new and very uh, prominent uh, suburb. And the apartment he rented was uh, owned by a man named W.L. Diamond. The Diamond family were originally from Henderson County, uh, Texas. But W.L. Diamond had moved his family uh, to Dallas at the turn of the century and helped uh, part of the chartering and organizing of the little community that became Oak Cliff. His youngest daughter, Vera, was born there in Oak Cliff. And she was quite the Dallas socialite, uh, as was uh, her family. They lived on the 400 block of Jefferson Avenue, which today is just uh, stone's throw off of Highway 35, heading into Dallas from the south and not very far from where the Dallas Zoo is today as well. But Jefferson Avenue was quite the address back at the turn of the century. And so Vera had her own very uh, plush, spoiled life, uh, apparently quite the beauty and quite the musician. Uh, she was uh, a favorite among all of the social parties going on in Dallas and in Oak Cliff back in those years. And one day, as you can imagine, uh, she uh, saw Roscoe there across the street coming out of the apartment that her father owned, and he probably saw her as well. They would both tell the story that it was love at first sight. On the other hand, you can imagine that uh, Vera's parents would not be thrilled 
that she was smitten by this tire salesman uh, who was renting their apartment. And although they objected, uh, they were not able to break the bonds between those two. And planning to elope uh, in the spring of 1917, somewhat ironic, isn't it, that Roscoe's own parents had done that, although he never did hear that story. Uh, Vera's parents finally relented, and in June of 1917, uh, Roscoe and Vera were married in the Oak Cliff Methodist Church uh, Sanctuary. That church, by the way, is uh, just a couple of blocks up Jefferson Avenue, right on the corner of South Marsalis Avenue, if you travel up uh, Jefferson Avenue. Um, today, it has been uh, shut down uh, and, and closed up, and uh, the congregation no longer meets at Oak Cliff Methodist Church. But 100 years ago, it was quite the prominent church with the Diamond family sitting in the front pew. At any rate, um, the war had now uh, come to America by the summer of 1917, and uh, because Roscoe and Vera were married, uh, he was uh, ineligible for the initial draft that took place uh, that summer. So they lived for a year there, uh, really back and forth between Dallas and San Antonio, and then settling in at San Antonio. But in uh, the next summer, a second draft uh, found that Roscoe was no longer um, ineligible because of being a married man. And Roscoe found himself drafted into the war. His first stop was at Camp Travis, which was uh, on the grounds and by the grounds of Fort Sam Houston today in San Antonio. He was there in August and September of 1918, and then was shipped off to Camp Dix in New Jersey, where a special camp had been set up near the little community of Wrightstown in New Jersey. Vera accompanied him on that trip to New Jersey and stayed for a couple of weeks before she finally um, headed back home, first to Oak Cliff and then back to San Antonio. Roscoe stayed there and last, in the last episode, that's where we found Roscoe uh, with the flu um, and suffering through it but surviving it, writing his first letters back to his bride and describing some of the um, uh, terrible situation there of men ill and dying uh, on either side of him. On October the 11th, um, with him finally having uh, overcome the last uh, vestiges of that flu epidemic and now uh, set to leave, uh, crossing the Atlantic and heading for the war in France, um, Oscar wrote this letter. I'm going to read this letter from my book. Um, this is a beautiful and poignant letter. Uh, let me read uh, the intro to it uh, from the book. With final preparations underway for the short trek across New Jersey to Hoboken and then by troop ship across the Atlantic, Corporal Roscoe Chittam sat at his cot on Friday evening, October the 11th, 1918 and poured his heart out to his, quote, dearest baby wife, unquote. 
This letter exudes the passion and the finality of his situation. He was now truly off to war. Having survived the deadly epidemic, while hundreds around him had died, the resilient Cherokee boy missed his bride terribly, and each poignant sentence reinforced the emotional outpouring of love. This may be the most beautiful letter of them all. Roscoe writes, I'm sorry for the letter I wrote yesterday, my dearest baby wife, but I sure was feeling bum. Your letters finally all came together. I hate to tell you this, sweet, but this is the last letter you'll get from me in the USA until I come back to you. We leave at 12 midnight tonight. I feel safe, and I'm not worried about going or getting back. My only regret is leaving the one little woman in the world, because you are everything to me, my wife, sweetheart, lover, and baby. And when I come back, we can make up for all the lost time and make every moment count. Each minute that I have spent with you will be recalled many thousand times to my memory while I am away from you. How I would love to take you in my arms and kiss away your tears and hold my lips to yours in loving, affectionate kisses like we always have had for each other. Going away would seem easier to me. Your sweet breath would remain fresh with me then till I came back. But I still have the memory of your sweet face as I last saw you standing there on the sidewalk, your wet eyes and longing look. Yet I could see your faithful expression of love and devotion, unselfish love. Knowing I was leaving you for months, maybe years, you tried to be the brave little girl that we would have you be. Those wet eyes will be my stars, your last fond kiss my substance, and your sweet face my guidance. And baby wife, I'll love away all your long days of lonesomeness when I come back to you. Your fond, loving, affectionate husband, Roscoe.